The Emmy Award-winning animated sitcom The Simpsons has been a worldwide phenomenon for over 30 years and is prophetically renowned for foreshadowing events like the controversy over Michelangelo's David in Season 2, Episode 9, Itchy and Scratchy and Marge, Disney buying Fox, Season 10, Episode 5, When You Dish Upon a Star, and Donald Trump's Presidency. Season 11, Episode 17, Bart to the Future. How do they do it? By holding up a shovel glass to human behavior and cultural tropes in a highly astute and utterly hilarious manner. For example, Once upon a time in Toronto, Canada, there was a motion to fill an abandoned mine in northern Ontario with garbage mirroring Homer Simpson's scheme in the 200th episode, Trash of the Titans, when he's elected Springfield Sanitation Commissioner using conversant campaign tactics. Quote, Homer makes crazy promises and panders to the lowest common denominator in the citizens of Springfield, telling everyone what they want to hear in order to win. And he does win. End quote. Officials screened the episode, exposing the absurdity of it all, calling The Simpsons, quote, the single most important influence on progressive social commentary in the world, end quote. I'm inclined to agree. It has even contributed innovative words to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, such as embiggens, a perfectly cromulent word, defined as, quote, to make bigger or more expansive, end quote. Also added, don't, demarcated as, quote, expressing frustration at the realization that things have turned out badly or not as planned, or that someone has just said or done something foolish, end quote. Scattered curiosity, when voice actor Dan Castellaneta first remitted Homer's annoyed grunt, he did an elongated do in the style of Jimmy Finlayson, the bald Scottish actor with the fake mustache who was the comic foil in 33 Laurel and Hardy shorts, but creator Matt Groening requested it be shortened to do The four-fingered citizens of Springfield, USA are so relatable that living human beings swear that certain characters are ditto dignitaries from their hometowns, like the owner of the Android's Dungeon and Baseball Card Shop, Jeff Albertson, alias comic book guy, who Matt Groening wanted to name Lewis Lane. The sarcastic know-it-all, who has humble brag possessing bootleg videos of Mr. Rogers' drunk alien autopsy and a good version of The Godfather 3, was given impetus by a Los Angeles comic shop. According to Graining, quote, I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and said, I know who you based comic book guy on. It's that comic book guy right down the block. And I have to tell them, no, it's every comic book store guy in America, end quote. I felt similarly about Krusty the Clown. Having grown up in Chicagoland, WGN-TV aired the hour-long children's program Bozo the Clown, sprinkled with cartoons, magic tricks, games, and Bozo Buckets, 
where one lucky kid would vie for a $50 bill and a brand new bike. When The Simpsons debuted, it was irrefutable to me that Krusty was modeled after Bozo. What did I know? There was no internet. Turns out, there have been equivalently measured Picador programs on local television stations since before I was born. Like the KPTV Portland, Oregon one Matt Groening watched as a kid, Rusty Nails. The Harlequin's name scared him. Now that the internet does exist, I have been vindicated of my assumption in that Castellaneta has stated that he indeed drew animus from the raspy-voiced bozo. Scattered curiosity, a briefly considered premise for The Simpsons was that of a kid, Bart, that does not respect his father, but worships a far sewer that looks just like him. Showrunners planned to lay bare one day that Homer was crusty, but that idea fizzled out. However, that very a priorism is the plot of season six, episode 15, Homie the Clown. And everybody wants to claim the nuclear family's township as their own, ignoring the fact that none of the 34 Springfields in the United States are topographically endowed with oceans, mountains, hills, gorges, redwood trees, a desert, a forest, lakes, rivers, and volcanoes all at once. This is Simpsucation. The Simpsons' placement in the timeline of my formative years is meaningful. Having premiered when I was 10 years old, same age as Bart, whose mischievous zazz I identified with. Many japes and innuendos went over my head that I didn't get until years later, but I especially recognized how Bart's budding sister Lisa seemed to know more than the grown-ups. Her superpower is not a catchphrase, but scholarship. Season 10, episode 22, They Saved Lisa's Brain, explores the feasibility of a geneocracy, or rule of the smartest, a framework of government stipulating a threshold of aptitude and imaginativeness for both political candidates and the body of voters. Stemming from the word genius, geniocracy is designed to bolster sensible judgments of stratagem and admonish the ignorance of crowd-pleasing sentiment prevalent in our current mediocracy, with the goal of a logically structured world empire tackling solutions surrounding the ecosphere, human rights, social impartiality, and world economics. The major hurdle to overcome with this kind of regimentation is how to measure intelligence. Not necessarily by how much proficiency someone possesses, but rather their potential. In this way, geniocracy seems little better than a dictatorship or oligarchy. After Lisa gets installed into the Springfield chapter of Menza, 
The group organizes a private renaissance gathering in the park, but get bullied out of their reserved gazebo. When they go to complain to City Hall, the mayor skirts responsibility and flees, leaving the Brainiacs to consult the town charter, which dictates that, quote, in the absence of the mayor, the town is to be governed by a council of learned citizens, end quote. Learned. It's pronounced learned. Quiet, you. The Springfield geniocracy quickly devolves to bickering, abolishes green traffic lights, and enacts metric time, all to disastrous outcomes, plus an affront by a certified mastermind and three-time guest star, Stephen Hawking, who is intrigued by Homer's donut-shaped universe theory, or toroidal, a real thing. Scattered curiosity... The episode's title is derived from the 1968 TV movie They Saved Hitler's Brain, regarded as one of the worst films ever made. Plot. At the end of World War II, the SS removes the Fuhrer's brain to one day revive Nazi Germany. They kidnap a scientist to make noxious weapons for them, but his daughter and her security operative husband travel to the fictive country of Mandoras to save him. Through trivial throwaway dialogue, The Simpsons has upped my Jeopardy game exponentially. If the category is American poets, and the clue mentions nude sunbathing, free verse, or leaves of grass, I confidently blurt out, who is Walt Whitman? All owing to Season 7, Episode 8, Mother Simpson, when Homer clears brush away from what he thinks is his mother's tombstone, only to reveal the resting place of Walt Whitman, actually located in Camden, New Jersey, and rampaging, quote, I hate you, Walt frickin' Whitman, leaves of grass my ass, end quote. This collection of metrical composition that Homer derides was circulated with Whitman's own money and considered lewd due to its blatant sensualism and themes of death and prostitution. Walt kept expanding it into new versions until his passing 40 years later. In the interim, he gained life experience working as a journalist, teacher, government clerk, and music critic where he developed a love of Italian opera. Quote, But for the opera, I never could have written Leaves of Grass. End quote. Walt voluntarily nursed wounded Civil War soldiers from the Great Army of the Sick and inked O Captain, My Captain in the wake of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Post-war, he worked at the Attorney General's office to interview bygone Confederate soldiers for presidential pardons. Quote, There are real characters among them, and you know I have a fancy for anything out of the ordinary. End quote. The 1871 reprinting of Leaves of Grass materialized as it was erroneously reported that Whitman had died in a train wreck, and the final deathbed edition promulgated two decades later. Scattered Curiosity, 
Bram Stoker considered Walt to be the quintessential male and modeled his undead Count Dracula after him. Bonus curiosity, over 500 musicians have put Walt Whitman's words to music, a record for American versifiers beaten only by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and Emily Dickinson, who is a second Jeopardy clue I know by virtue of Season 8, Episode 25, The Secret War of Lisa Simpson. Quote, Okay, I'm not going to give up. Solitude never hurt anyone. Emily Dickinson lived alone, and she wrote some of the most beautiful transcendental poetry the world has ever known. Then went crazy as a loon. End quote. Though Emily Dickinson didn't exactly live alone. She dwelled with her wealthy family in their Amherst, Massachusetts residence. Antipodal to her stature as a depressed loner, Emily had made lifelong friends while attending Amherst Academy, had a passion for music, and played piano. Well-versed in the Bible, Emily had enjoyed church as a child, but at age 22, quilled, quote, Some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home. End quote. Like when Homer plays hooky from church in Season 4, Episode 3, Homer the Heretic. Dickinson was enraptured reading William Wordsworth, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the Bronte sisters, William Shakespeare, and hand-sewed fascicles of her own poesy with needle and thread through her most fruitful anapestic days. She also studied botany and kept a 66-page leather-bound herbarium of pressed foliage, which currently resides in the Houghton Library at Harvard University. An herbarium is an assemblage of dried plant varieties cataloged with specific data. The oldest corroborated one was that of 16th-century Italian Luca Ghini who simply put samples between two pieces of paper and flattened them to sop up the moisture, which really works. I've tried it. Emily would enclose them in her letters. Of her many recipients, sister-in-law Susan Gilbert received the most, as testimony points to their having had a lesbian relationship. Quote, Susie, Will you indeed come home next Saturday and be my own again and kiss me? I hope for you so much and feel so eager for you. Feel that I cannot wait. Feel that I now must have you. That the expectation once more to see your face again makes me feel hot and feverish. And my heart beats so fast, my darling, so near I seem to you that I disdain this pen and wait for a warmer language, End quote. As things go, her mother, also named Emily, was chronically ill, so daughter Emily, or her puerile sister Lavinia, needed to be always home. Self-isolation took hold of the abstractionist in her late 30s, when Dickinson preferred to talk to visitors by agency of a crack in the door. 
Her father died when she was 44, and even though the funeral was at their homestead, she stayed in her room for the service. On the rare occasion that Emily did venture out, it was to be one with her true companions, the Hills, the Sundown, and her dog, Carlo, named after the dog in Jane Eyre. Only 10 of her 1,800 sestinas were made public during her life. Using the ABCB format of perfect rhymes on lines 2 and 4, slant rhymes when desired, with a melancholy emphasis on death, be it, quote, crucifixion, drowning, hanging, suffocation, freezing, premature burial, shooting, stabbing, and guillotinage. End quote. Following Emily's lost battle with Bright's disease, a treasure trove of verse was unearthed and submitted for publication on the condition that edits be made to conceal sexual orientation, changing hers to hims and she's to he's and whatnot. And even these abridged works would not be ventilated until 1955. Emily was posthumously esteemed with a commemorative stamp and induction to the National Women's Hall of Fame. Scattered curiosity, while Emily Dickinson is rumored to have dressed in all white late in her life, she is not the surefire answer if the Jeopardy clue is American authors who wear white, owing to the humorist Mark Twain, who was five years her junior, and the more contemporary Thomas Kennerly Wolfe, who knocked it up a notch by accessorizing with a white tie, white Homburg hat, and two-toned spectator shoes, making him stick out like a, quote, man from Mars, the man who didn't know anything and was eager to know, end quote. This image of Wolf provides a sight gag in Season 12, Episode 3, Insane Clown Poppy, when Homer spills chocolate on Wolf's suit, who coolly pulls it off, uncovering an identical ensemble underneath. It would not be his only mention on The Simpsons. Acclaimed for his new journalism style, Tom reported for several news outlets, The Washington Post, the New York Herald Tribune, and won the Newspaper Guild Award for his dispatches from Cuba in 1961. Wolf provides a brand of scene-by-scene -scene playback, broad conversation, unconventional points of view, and an underscore of distinction in his writing. Quote, I think every living moment of a human being's life, unless the person is starving or in immediate danger of death in some other way, is controlled by a concern for status, end quote. Tom embraced saturation reporting, whereby the wordsmith immerses themselves with their subject's intimate life, and coined the terms statusphere, the right stuff, the me decade, good old boy, and radical chic. Wolf documented the late 60s counterculture movements of Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters in The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, a book overflowing with free association, onomatopoeias, 
and exclamation points, making Lisa's line from Season 18, Episode 6, Moena Lisa, so fitting. Quote, It's Tom Wolfe. He's used more exclamation points than any other American writer. End quote. The electric Kool-Aid acid test is also referenced when Homer teams up with a pair of hippies to freak out squares to the tune of Uptown Girl in Season 10, Episode 16, Doin' in the Wind, which begins with an industrial film for the Springfield Nuclear Power Plant starring Homer that is credited as an Alan Smithy film. The assumed name directors used when they didn't want to be associated with the film, sanctioned by the Directors Guild of America between 1968 and 2000, and only allowable if it could be proven artistic control of a project was lost. It was first exercised in the movie Death of a Gunfighter when a director was replaced at the complaint of the lead actor halfway through. Remarkably, the Phantom Kingpin was well-received by the New York Times. Quote, The movie was sharply directed by Alan Smithy, who has an adroit facility for scanning faces and extracting sharp background detail. End quote. And film analyst Roger Ebert reviewed, quote, Director Alan Smithy, a name I'm not familiar with, allows his story to unfold naturally, end quote. Likewise trade pseudonyms, David Agnew, Robin Bland, Noah Ward, Noah Ward, and Sam O. Brown, initials S.O.B. But I digress. Now, entire Jeopardy categories have been assigned to the Comanche of Literature, Edgar Allan Poe, and The Simpsons equipped me with my headmost cognizant exposure to his work in Season 1, Episode 8, The Telltale Head, when Bart hacksaws the noggin off the statue of the town's benefactor, Jebediah Springfield. The short story was revisited in Season 6, Episode 2, Lisa's Rival, when the Simpson kids swap a cow's vascular organ for the new student Allison's diorama of the telltale heart, fittingly hiding it in the school's gymnasium trap door, echoing the cautionary chronicle of a nameless raconteur describing the perfect crime, dismembering an elderly man who had a vulture-like eye. That is, until a guilty conscience conjures the sound of the victim's heartbeat from the floorboards. The assailant is then convinced that detectives can hear the pulsations too and fully confesses. It is Poe's opprobrium of the newly introduced insanity defense to United States law. And who could forget the Cardinal Treehouse of Horror episode that concluded with a simplified dramatization of the Tomahawk Man's ghostly villanelle, The Raven a lamentation over lost love, and the infuriating raven perched upon the bust of Pallas Athena, Greek goddess of wisdom, squawking, nevermore. Poe claimed, quote, 
the death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world, end quote. It was invigorated by Charles Dickens' Barnaby Rudge, A Tale of the Riots of Eighty, that also includes a talking raven, but with a wider vocabulary. Nevertheless, while the raven made Edgar legendary in his own lifetime, Abraham Lincoln committed it to memory, it did not make him rich. Unlike the Russian-born writer who spurned religion, espoused principled egoism, charged that reason was the only way to learn, and whose funeral gave prominence to a six-foot-tall floral dollar sign that stood next to her coffin, Alisa Zinovievna Rosenbaum, better known as Ayn Rand. The altruist is routinely razzed on The Simpsons. Season 4, Episode 2, A Streetcar Named Marge, had scenes take place at the Ayn Rand School for Tots, decorated with posters postulating, quote, helping is futile, end quote, and, quote, A is A, end quote, which are extensions of Rand's belief in objectivism. As a girl, the October Revolution of Lenin's Bolsheviks forced her family to flee St. Petersburg for the Crimea. At age 20, Ein visited relatives in America to learn English and become a screenwriter. Once in Hollywood, she met Tinseltown's Cecil B. DeMille, who utilized her as an extra in The King of Kings, which eventualized into a junior screenwriting position. After selling her screenplay Red Pawn to Universal Studios, she penned a Broadway drama titled The Night of January 16th, where each performance, a jury was composed from audience members who would then vote on one of two discrete endings. Rand was prone to fierce mood swings attributed to her 30-year benzedrine addiction, was part of the anti-communist motion picture alliance for the preservation of American ideals, and testified as a friendly witness in front of the U.S. House of Un-American Activities Committee. When a film version of her book The Fountainhead was made, she hated it, and she wrote the screenplay. Ein saw her work as, quote, romantic realism, end quote, delineating the world, quote, as it could be and should be, end quote, and balked at philosophers, all but Aristotle, routinely recommending the three A's, Aristotle, Aquinas, and Ayn Rand. Her most well-known work, Atlas Shrugged, centers on a dystopian America where reputed scientists, artists, and manufacturers go on strike and build their own society. A 1991 survey taken by a Book of the Month club disclosed that, behind the Bible, Atlas Shrugged was the most influential book in readers' lives. While a right-leaning conservative, she was pro-choice, protested the Vietnam War and military conscription while simultaneously calling draft dodgers bums. 
She viewed same-sex relationships as, quote, immoral and disgusting, end quote, and endorsed the confiscation of Native American lands. Rand's theories were evident in the tax policies of the Trump administration, which he credited to Rand's, quote, enduring influence, end quote. Between 2002 and 2012, more than 60 colleges accepted grants on the condition of making Ayn Rand mandatory curriculum. A wonderfully unceremonious line from the Treehouse of Horror 8 segment, The Genesis Tub, is when Lisa's science fair project sculpts her as the accidental god of a rapidly evolving micro-society. Observing, quote, one of them is nailing something to the door of the cathedral. I've created Lutherans, end quote. This pertains to Martin Luther, the 16th century German theologian and priest for whom the denomination is named. A baptized Catholic, he too studied Aristotle, which was at odds with his faith because, quote, reason could not lead men to God, end quote. Regardless, at age 22, while riding to university, lightning struck right near his horse's hooves, and Martin took it as a heavenly portent, exclaiming, quote, Help Santa Anna, I will become a monk, end quote. His father was unhappy that he'd wasted so much money on his education. Monkhood did not sit well with Luther, who increasingly viewed the church as corrupt and moving away from fundamental verities. Quote, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter and made of him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. End quote. He parted with the Catholic Church over, amongst other things, the controversy of indulgences, which he publicly admonished by nailing his 95 thesis challenging ecclesiastics to the door of the Wittenberg Church on October 31, 1517. Hence the punchline of Lisa's quip. Indulgences were sold as amnesty of sins, the funds from which were to rebuild and restore St. Peter's Basilica. Quote, Why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of Crassus, build the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than with his own money? End quote. In Luther's view, forgiveness came from God. To presume elsewise was dishonest. This got him excommunicated by Pope Leo X and Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Luther continued to defy the patriarchy by translating the Bible into German so common folks could read it and adding hymns to sermons. He also set forth the precedent allowing Protestant clergymen to marry by wedding a whilom nun whom he smuggled out of a convent in a herring barrel. As heroic as all of that sounds, one cannot dilute Martin Luther's anti-Semitic succor of burning synagogues, forbidding rabbis' ability to preach, 
and marauding Jewish property so the, quote, envenom worms, end quote, would be banished for all time, a sentiment that persisted after his death. Luther perceived Jews as, quote, the devil's people, end quote, accountable for the killing of Christ. Quote, Among all the church fathers and reformers, there was no mouth viler, no tongue that uttered more vulgar curses against the children of Israel than this founder of the Reformation, end quote. As one of the most read scribes of his time, Martin was seen as a prognosticator in Germany, so it is unsurprising that Nazis enumerated his works to justify enacting a tenant dragooning Jews to wear yellow badges. But authors aren't the only Jeopardy category that The Simpsons awakened me to. Delving into the world of yellow skin and overbites, I found the stories of regenerative icons that Springfield Denzians emanate to also be useful for Jeopardy and have fascinating backgrounds of their own. Take the alumnus of Hollywood Upstairs Medical College, Dr. Nick Riviera. Hi, everybody! which is Hank Azaria's impression of Ricky Ricardo. The physician is based, in part, on Dr. George C. Nicopoulos, who treated Elvis Presley for saddle pain in advance of being upgraded to full-time practitioner. In 1977 alone, Dr. Nicopoulos, a.k.a. Dr. Feelgood, prescribed the king over 10,000 doses of amphetamines, barbiturates, narcotics, tranquilizers, sleeping pills, laxatives, and hormones. Being a pallbearer at Presley's funeral did not prevent George from being shot in the chest by an unknown assailant while watching a football game and surviving. Nicopoulos was indicted on 14 counts for overprescription and after losing his credentials, summarily functioned as Jerry Lee Lewis's road manager. And if you drop the Lee from the piano virtuoso's name, you get a clunky transition to our next Springfieldian, also played by Hank Azaria, John I.Q. Nerdlebaum Frank Jr., an extremely intuitive and socially inept professor at Springfield Heights Institute of Technology, whose inventions include the frog exaggerator, sarcasm detector, eight-month-after pill, the burglar-proof house, and debigulator. On top of curing Frink's disease, John is the eminent egghead on the element Frinkonium, and microcalifragilistics. His Idiot Box Entrance, Season 2, Episode 17, Old Money, was scripted as a one-off scene in need of a stereotypical evil scientist. But when Hank Azaria infused the essence of Jerry Lewis from The Nutty Professor, he created a beloved series regular. In the words of Matt Groening, quote, he was just a mad scientist character until Hank did the voice, and suddenly he became this nutty professor persona. What I love about Hank is that you give him a single line, and most of these characters have very few lines, and he just brings it to life. Every time. End quote. 
Jerry Lewis himself voiced Frank's father in the second segment of Treehouse of Horror 14, titled Frankenstein. Born Joseph Levich to vaudevillian parents, Jerry Lewis was never a stranger to the entertainment industry. As the unfledged half of the comedy team Martin and Lewis, that's Dean Martin, promotions increasingly overfeatured Jerry to the point where Look Magazine cropped Dino out of a photograph meant to spotlight the comedy duo. The pair divorced ten years later. Fast forward to 1956, and Judy Garland is unable to present her Las Vegas act at the Sands Casino when Jerry Lewis surfaces from the bullpen, bringing down the house with jokes and songs, resulting in his five-year residency. Such popularity encouraged production of DC Comics' The Adventures of Jerry Lewis, which was in print for an astounding 14 years. Jerry had a consubstantial accord with Paramount Pictures to complete 14 films in seven years at the price of $10 million, making him the most expensive man in Hollywood with final cut sway. The head of Paramount said, quote, If Jerry wants to burn down the studio, I'll give him the match. End quote. Cinema would be forever changed with The Bellboy, as the actor-director enriched a filmmaking method operating video cameras on closed-circuit monitors to quickly review takes, to ensure delivery on time and under budget, earning Lewis the Golden Light Technical Achievement Award for Jerry's Noisy Toy. Up until then, only Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin had the audacity to direct themselves, but Jerry cleared the path for future comedy gurus Mel Brooks and Woody Allen. Considered an expert of celluloid, Lewis taught film directing at USC, emboldening two students of note, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. The Simpsons has alluded that France adores the prolific auteur, substantiated by the real-life book titled why the French Love Jerry Lewis, though Lewis contended that he was more sought after in Japan, Germany, and Australia. Jerry left Paramount for Columbia Pictures to focus on more serious material, such as The Day the Clown Cried, heretofore taking an unprecedented decade-long hiatus from the silver screen. His triumphant homecoming to the limelight came with 1982's The King of Comedy, playing a late-night talk show host stalked by two maniacal groupies. Jerry returned to the stage in 1986 for the inaugural comic relief, and despite brilliant performances from Penny Marshall and Minnie Pearl, he has said, quote, I don't like any female comedians. A woman doing comedy doesn't offend me, but sets me back a bit. I, as a viewer, have trouble with it. I think of her as a producing machine that brings babies into the world, end quote. But admittedly expressed admiration for Lucille Ball, Carol Burnett, Kathleen Freeman, Phyllis Diller, Elaine Boozler, and Whoopi Goldberg. 
Acknowledging his 60-year devotion to combating multiple sclerosis with his telethons, his personal life was plagued by a Percodan addiction and habitual infidelities encompassing Marilyn Monroe and Marlene Dietrich. While we're womanizing, let's move on to Springfield's philandering demagogue, Mayor Joseph Fitzgerald O'Malley Fitzpatrick O'Donnell the Edge Quimby, who is the embodiment of the credo emblazoned above his desk, corruptus in extremis, extremely corrupt. This chowda-chomping politician who vacations at the Quimby compound and once referred to his jurisdiction in a mid-Atlantic Boston accent as Sprungfeld is mimicry of the long-serving Massachusetts senator Ted Kennedy, who, in anticipation for the long-awaited Simpsons movie in 2007, invited Diamond Joe Quimby and the movie to premiere in Springfield, Massachusetts. Springfield, Vermont, won the aggrandizement. Edward Moore Kennedy was the youngest sibling of nine and exhibited enthusiasm for the arts, yet found himself on the Harvard football team. While there, he was part of a contrivance to cheat on final exams that got him expelled. With few other options, he enlisted in the Army for the standard four-year term shortened to two thanks to his consequential father, who also kept Ed out of Korea. Kennedy was then readmitted to Harvard to, quote, go into another contact sport, politics, end quote. But his poor grades kept him out of Harvard Law School, so he enrolled at the University of Virginia instead. Ted spearheaded Brother John's 1958 senatorial re-election campaign and proved to be effective in captivating voters. He had a pilot's license and vaunted Western constituents by bronc riding and ski jumping. Ted joined the Senate in a special election to fill his family's seat when Jack became president much to the dismay of his retractors that despised this growing American dynasty holding positions of president, attorney general, and senator. Ted's opponent, Edward J. McCormack, asserted, quote, the office of United States senator should be merited and not inherited, end quote. The 60s were a tumultuous time for the Kennedys, and having lost two older brothers to assassination, Ted assumed the worst was finally behind him. Then came the 1969 Chappaquiddick incident, involving a Martha's Vineyard party he was hosting for a group of ladies that worked on RFK's presidential campaign, that concluded with Ted careening his Oldsmobile Delmont 88 into the Poucha Pond and trapping his passenger, Mary Jo Kopechnik. After a spattering of alleged attempts to rescue her, Kennedy left the scene and failed to inform the constabulary until the next day. In his own words, quote, I regard it as indefensible the fact that I did not report the accident to the police immediately, end quote, but denied having been intoxicated or engaging in an inappropriate relationship with the young woman and thusly would not resign from office. 
Policy-wise, he worked to pass the National Cancer Act, the Federal Election Campaign Act Amendment, the COBRA Health Insurance Provision, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, and was one of only 23 senators to vote against the Iraq War, or Bush's Vietnam. Notwithstanding, drunken carousing was standard in Washington, D.C. restaurants where Ted was accused of sexually assaulting a waitress. Female staffers remarked that Kennedy was on a list of male senators who had reputations for bully-ragging women, especially in elevators. Ted pressed hard against Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court nomination, but dialed it back when sexual harassment allegations from Anita Hill came to the floor in what is considered to be the worst moment of Ted's Senate career because he was, quote, muzzled by the facts of his life, end quote. At Ted's funeral, Nancy Reagan eulogized, quote, Given our political differences, people are sometimes surprised how close Ronnie and I have been to the Kennedy family. I will miss him, end quote. Sticking with troubled presidential brothers brought to my awareness by the Simpsons, how about William Alton Carter, who peddled Billy Beer for the Falls City Brewing Company? Each can read, quote, Brewed expressly for and with the personal approval of one of America's all-time great beer drinkers, Billy Carter, quote, in a quote, I had this beer brewed up just for me. I think it's the best I ever tasted, and I've tasted a lot. I think you'll like it too. End quote. In private, Billy drank Pabst. He was also the spokesperson for a 53-proof belly dancer-labeled whiskey peanut-flavored liqueur named Peanut Lolita. We elected the wrong Carter. Homer Simpson's assessment of Billy Beer in Season 3, Episode 2, The Auto Show, which also acquainted me with the band Spinal Tap. These go to 11. And we're going to 1.3 billion, the Forbes estimated net worth of Charles Montgomery Burns, who possesses the physique of Fox patron Barry Diller and the disposition of both John D. Rockefeller and Howard Hughes. I love Mr. Burns's archaic idiosyncrasies that suggest that he is impossibly old, like his birthplace is Pangea, that he owns the first car to outrun a man, or the fact that he doesn't speak to his mother on the grounds of her affair with William Howard Taft, or his slave-owning father, who was the inspiration for Simon Legree, from Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Starting with the first of Burns's duality, John D. Rockefeller's father, William Rockefeller Sr., exuded comparative paternal qualities. Known by his detractors as Devil Bill, he taught John to always get the upper hand, boasting, quote, I cheat my boys every chance I get. I want to make them sharp, end quote. JDR's mother was the exact opposite and insisted, quote, willful waste makes woeful want, end quote. As a child, John loved music and considered it a career path. 
wishing to make $100,000 and live to be 100 years old. Rockefeller's ambition to accomplish this inclination began with a humble produce company that thrived supplying the Union Army in the Civil War. He was a supporter of Abraham Lincoln's newly consummated Republican Party, championed the Underground Railroad, and built schools for freedmen after the war, living by the mantra, quote, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can, end quote. As America healed from the national conflict, John Sites shifted to oil refining. A customary practice at the time was to yield kerosene and dispose of the useless remaining 40% of material into lakes and rivers. Rockefeller sold off his surplus waste as tar, petroleum jelly, lubricating oil, and gasoline and acquired 22 Ohio rivals in what has become known as the Cleveland Conquest or Cleveland Massacre. The robber baron Standard Oil Company made him the nation's premier billionaire with 2% of the national economy. When it became clear that the 1890 Sherman Antitrust Law was targeting Standard Oil, John shifted focus to a divergent commodity, iron putting him at odds with the metallic magnate Andrew Carnegie. Muckraker Ida Tarbell, whose father was put out of business by Rockefeller, dispersed the history of the Standard Oil Company. Quote, I never had an animus against their size and wealth, never objected to their corporate form. I was willing that they should combine and grow as big and wealthy as they could, but only by legitimate means. But they had never played fair, and that ruined their greatness for me. End quote. Rockefeller adduced her to Miss Tarbarrel. In the end, the Supreme Court ruled that Standard Oil had flouted federal antitrust laws and broke it into 34 disparate syndicates, including Chevron, Conoco, Amoco, now BP, and ExxonMobil, just to name a few. John's legacy is perfectly summarized here. Quote, What makes him problematic and why he continues to inspire ambivalent reactions is that his good side was every bit as good as his bad side was bad. Seldom has history produced such a contradictory figure. End quote. But it does. Enter the OCD-afflicted business mogul, pilot, engineer, and movie producer... Howard Robard Hughes Jr. His father patented a two-cone roller bit for drilling oil and made a large profit by starkly leasing his equipment, establishing the Hughes Tool Company. By age 11, Howard Jr. crafted the primogenial wireless radio transmitter in Houston, Texas, was one of the first ham radio machinists in the vicinity, and made headlines as the only kid in the area to have a motorized bike constructed from steam engine parts procured in his dad's shop. By age 19, both of his parents were deceased. Howard was an inconspicuous golfer, shooting par most of the time, and nearly went pro until a plane crash injury took the game out of him. 
he would survive four aviation wrecks throughout his life. Hughes gained notoriety obtaining RKO pictures and closing the studio for six months to examine the political inclinations of employees. Romantically linked to Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Ava Gardner, Katherine Hepburn, Hedy Lamarr, Ginger Rogers, Janet Lee, and Mamie Van Doren, it has been said of him, quote, I don't think Howard could love anything that did not have a motor in it, end quote. His engrossments were somewhat split when he contrived the Hughes Aircraft Company, opening doors to munitions bonds and breaking aeronautic records with his Hughes H-1 Racer, now in the Smithsonian, and the Spruce Goose, a wooden airboat made not of spruce, but of birch, so as not to use precious aluminum needed for the war effort. On The Simpsons, Mr. Burns designs the spruce moose. Throughout World War II, Howard focused on armament covenants for a helicopter division, radar systems, missile operandi, commercial satellites, and the first laser, appropriating himself a Congressional Gold Medal. His mental health was called into question after squatting in a movie house for months, naked, with a pink napkin over his genitals, eating chocolate bars, drinking milk, and inundated by stacks of Kleenex boxes and stored urine bottles. Howard's eccentric behavior was amplified by his codeine addiction, which he took intravenously. He bought a handful of hotels in Las Vegas, the Sands, Frontier, and Castaways, and even annexed the nominal Silver Slipper Hotel on account of its neon sign keeping him awake at night. Scattered curiosity, Howard loved Baskin-Robbins banana nut ice cream, and upon hearing that they had discontinued the flavor, he arranged for a special order to be made. The smallest batch they would do was 350 gallons. Once it arrived, Hughes decided that he instead favored French vanilla. So, the Desert Inn gave out free banana nut ice cream to its guests for a year. On the word of an ex-Hughes subordinate in an interview, quote, There is a rumor that there is still some banana nut ice cream left in the freezer. It is most likely true. End quote. Hughes died of kidney failure in 1976 while on board a flight from Mexico to Houston. In view of his rail-thin semblance, beard, and long nails, he had to be identified using fingerprints. The autopsy uncovered five broken hypodermic needles in his arms. Pivoting from Mr. Burns's bouting personalities... I would be remiss if I didn't point out the social commentary of nuclear power on The Simpsons. The revelation of Blinky the Three-Eyed Fish in Season 1, Episode 4, Homer's Odyssey, and Season 2, Episode 4, Two Cars in Every Garage and Three Eyes on Every Fish, is cute to a ten-year-old who doesn't fully grasp the meaning, but thanks to comments like, quote, Homer... Your bravery and quick thinking have turned a potential Chernobyl into a mere three-mile island. Bravo! End quote. From Season 7, Episode 7, King Size Homer, 
I could establish some context. The Soviet accident at Chernobyl is one of two nuclear events measured at maximum gravity by the international nuclear scale. It happened during a safety test of emergency feed water pumps in the number 4 reactor on April 26, 1986. Explosions threw radioactive graphite into the air, contaminating the encompassing area from fallout. Firefighters on the scene described tasting metal and the sensation of pins and needles all over their faces, indicators that Manhattan Project physicists were all too familiar with. Citizens of the nearby Pripyat began feeling sick just hours after the fulmination, presenting symptoms of tinny taste, headaches, coughing, and vomiting. A 19-mile radius on the fringes of the plant is still an exclusionary zone today. Soviet leadership tried to keep the disaster a secret, but far-off Swedish instruments identified radioactive particles on the clothes of their nuclear workers as they clocked in, not out, of their shifts, stirring misgivings of a leak. When none was detected, the Swedes suspected the USSR and prepared to exhibit their findings to the International Atomic Energy Agency. Countless brave Ukrainians risked their lives to prevent the situation from worsening, including three that donned diving suits in contaminated water to open sluice gates. They'd be awarded the Order for Courage. 32 years later. Subway builders and coal miners were concurrently digging underneath the reactor in the hopes of building a cooling apparatus beneath the forge inasmuch as the floor was quite literally lava. The hundred tons of radioactive rubbish on the rooftop needed to be removed to safely inhume the whole area in a sarcophagus. Ineffectual automatons enjoined human beings to behave as bio-robots wearing radioactive gear and shoveling it off 90 seconds at a time. The IAEA cited deficient safety culture at all levels, blaming the 29 emergencies entirely on the plant operators. Quote, It was like airplane pilots experimenting with the engines in flight. End quote. As punishment, five chief engineers were sent to labor camps. 400 times more radioactive material was vented into the atmosphere by Chernobyl than both the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it spawned the Red Forest, four square miles of annihilated pine trees. The thyroid glands of wild horses swelled to dangerous levels, and child thyroid cancer rates from contaminated dairy soared. In the face of aspersion, the USSR defended itself with whataboutism, citing the 1979 Three Mile Island accident, which was a partial meltdown of a Pennsylvanian ziggurat that discharged radioactive iodine and gases into the environment. Cleanup took 14 years. Block valves were closed, which goes against Nuclear Regulatory Commission protocol, 
and the release mechanism was foolishly located behind the seven-foot-tall instrument panel where nobody could see it. Authorities recommended evacuation of a 20-mile radius, but 98% of those refugees retreated to their homes within three weeks. The President's Commission on the Accident at Three Mile Island ascertained workers, quote, were operating under procedures that they were required to follow, and our review and study of those indicates that the procedures were inadequate, and the control room was greatly inadequate for managing the accident, end quote. The occurrence is the substructure for Charles Perrault's normal accident theory. Quote, the failure at Three Mile Island was a consequence of the system's immense complexity. Such modern high-risk systems are prone to failures however well they are managed. It was inevitable that they would eventually suffer a normal accident. Given the characteristic of the system involved, multiple failures that intersect with each other will occur, despite efforts to avoid them. End quote. Significantly, the movie The China Syndrome opened just 12 days in front of TMI and was disparaged for its negative rendering of nuclear energy. The film accentuates a fictional accident in an atomic edifice, expounding that a paroxysm could, quote, render an area the size of the state of Pennsylvania permanently uninhabitable. End quote. The fiasco spurred activists and star of the China Syndrome, Jane Fonda, to protest. Another Simpson fan favorite, Gil Gunderson, was actualized in Season 9, Episode 10, Realty Bites, as a 20-year veteran of Red Blazer Realty, selling his own house to himself repeatedly. It is Castellaneta's spoof of Sheldon the Machine Levine from David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross, starring Jack Lemmon, Al Pacino, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, Kevin Spacey, and Jonathan Price. A cast once ascribed as, quote, death of a fucking salesman, end quote. Two days in the life of four real estate agents who have their jobs threatened by a corporate spokesman who will fire the two weakest sales reps. Scattered curiosity, Alec Baldwin's cameo in the film was not part of the stage play from which it was adapted, but accouches its two most excerpted lines. ABC, always be closing, and coffee is for closers. Bonus curiosity, Joe Montaigne won a Fat Tony Award for his work in the original Broadway cast, which just so happens to be the nickname of the Simpsons character he plays, Marion Anthony Fat Tony D'Amico, who runs the legitimate businessman social club alongside his goons, Legs, Louie, and Johnny Tightlips. He is resemblant of the real-world mobster Anthony Fat Tony Salerno, of the Genovese crime family that was brought to rectitude in 1986 on RICO charges. As the FBI hounded Fat Tony for being an East Harlem bookie, Salerno sought the legal counsel of the infamous Roy Cohn, but ended up serving time. Speaking of, 
You know Mr. Burns' attorney, the blue-haired lawyer? Well, his voice and demeanor are based on Roy Cohn. Admitted to the bar at age 21 and exalted to an assistant U.S. attorney within a month, Cohn labored as Joe McCarthy's lead counsel targeting Soviet operatives and rose in ranks during the 1951 Julius and Ethel Rosenberg espionage trial, proximate of their execution for possession of classified materials. In addition to the Red Scare, Cohn fueled the Lavender Scare, claiming that communists were blackmailing closeted homosexuals that worked for the U.S. government and managed to convince President Eisenhower to sign an order banning them from working for the Fed. Suicide rates escalated noticeably. It should be noted that Cohn himself was a gay man. He resigned in 1954 and was replaced by RFK. As a firm lawyer, Cohn represented high-profile New Yorkers, such as George Steinbrenner, Aristotle Onassis, John Gotti, and Rupert Murdoch. In fact, Cohn is the one responsible for introducing Murdoch to Donald Trump who'd been a client since 1971 after the Justice Department denounced him for violating the Fair Housing Act. Cohn tried and failed to countersue for $100 million. They settled out of court, but resurfaced three years later for disobeying the terms of the resolution. Cohn's career was dogged with litigation over extortion, theft, tax evasion, bribery, obstruction, fraud, witness tampering, and perjury when he became a confidant to Roger Stone while campaigning for Ronald Reagan. Cohn was disbarred for unethical conduct on the heels of a feeble attempt to coerce a dying millionaire to will all their money to him by shoving a pen in the man's comatose hand the scribble made was deemed indecipherable in court. Roy Cohn died five weeks later of AIDS, insisting it was liver cancer, but would be immortalized in Tony Kushner's gay fantasia on national themes, Angels in America, as a dying villain haunted by the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg. Roger Stone said of him, quote, Roy was not gay. He was a man who liked having sex with men. Gays are weak, effeminate. He always seemed to have these young blonde boys around. It just wasn't discussed. He was interested in power and access. End quote. The IRS seized everything at Cohn's death except a pair of diamond cufflinks given to him by the last person Roy spoke to on the phone, Donald Trump. Quote, Cohn's absolute goal was to die completely broke and owing millions to the IRS. He succeeded in that. End quote. On the other side of law and order, Springfield's police chief Clancy Wiggum is a lampoon of the peculiar vocal timbre of the Romanian-American star of 30 Broadway plays and over 100 movies from Hollywood's golden age, Edward G. Robinson who is best recognized as Caesar Enrico Bandello in Little Caesar and Johnny Rocco in Key Largo. 
Robinson appeared in five films with Humphrey Bogart and has been hailed as one of the best actors never to receive an Oscar nomination. Not only was Ed fighting fascism as an FBI agent in Confessions of a Nazi Spy, at age 48, he volunteered for World War II and was assigned to give radio addresses in the six languages he spoke. Unfortunately, 11 of the 850 charities he donated to were declared communist fronts by the FBI. Therefore, he had to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee that put him on Hollywood's gray list, otherwise known as Poverty Row. Robinson was incipiently cast as Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas in Planet of the Apes, but health complications could not accommodate the intense makeup schedule. His final role would be in an atypical Charlton Heston film, Soylent Green. Heston honored Robinson with the SAG Award in, quote, recognition of his pioneering work in organizing the Union, his service during World War II, and his outstanding achievement in fostering the finest ideals of the acting profession, end quote. Now that The Simpsons are about to go into their 35th season, Online haters have suggested that the show has outstayed its welcome, but I disagree. It continues to keep up with the times and dish out rape your wit, societal scathing, and history lessons that our doomed citizenry so desperately needs. Please support teachers, support local libraries, and support your favorite podcasts with star ratings, wink wink nudge nudge, say no more, and we'll see you next time. Worst episode ever. If you'd like to help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.